Establishing a set point for your regulator? Canadian crude, eh? Repairing a spring-loaded back pressure regulator. We're going to talk about that and more on this episode of Stuff You Should Know About Oil and Gas Production. Hello and welcome to Stuff You Should Know About Oil and Gas Production. I'm Curtis. I'm here again with Kyle and Jordan. How goes it, fellas? Going well. Happy Thursday? Yes. All right. Uh, this is a special episode. We're going to answer some questions that we've gotten over on the Kimray YouTube channel. We've got a, a pretty... Uh, a pretty popular YouTube channel, a lot of helpful videos on there, and we've got a lot of commenters. And so we actually, we're going to start the show out by giving some shout outs to some of our more frequent commenters. So first we've got Victor Hugo Ortega Zamudio, my man from Venezuela. Thank you, Victor, for the, the feedback you've given on our videos and the questions you're asking. Uh, we've got several engineers from India that comment on our videos and ask really uh, insightful questions. And then our guys at, at Texas Tech, we've got some engineering students, petroleum engineering students down there, giving great feedback. And I know Kyle and, and Alex, uh, I think, have, have met uh, a lot of you guys. So shout out, Red Raiders. Uh, what do you guys want to hear? Send us more feedback. Let us know what you want to hear a, a podcast about. All right. So we're going to answer YouTube questions today on the podcast. We've got five questions questions here, maybe four and a half, <laughs> that I'm going to ask you, Jordan and Kyle, uh, that we're going to answer for, for listeners. So Jordan, we'll start with you. This question is about set point on a pressure regulator. So it says, can anybody explain to me in simple terms, what is the set point for a pressure regulator? Uh, so simply put, uh, what a pressure regulator is doing is it's regulating pressure. Okay. And a set point is essentially the pressure amount that you're wanting to regulate to. So for instance, if you have a, re a pressure regulator uh, holding back pressure and you want it to hold 125 pounds of back pressure, your set point would be 125 pounds. That's the word we use to describe the amount of pressure that the regulator is working to hold or in, a, in the case of a pressure-reducing regulator uh, to maintain downstream of the valve. So you got two basic kinds of, of regulators. You got the back pressure regulator mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. pressure-reducing regulator. So on the back pressure side, or, or style version, it's holding upstream pressure, pressure-reducing side holding downstream pressure. Mm -hmm. And that set point is what pressure... How much pressure you want to maintain on either side of the valve, depending on... The device is is set point one word or two words. Oh man, I've always put it as one, one word set point. I, I think I think I'm very right. inconsistent. I think I'm yeah, all over I'm, the place I'm with on you this on one. that one, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Another okay. way to think of set point is um, just it's the controlled pressure. It's the mm -hmm. the pressure yeah. that you're trying yep. to control. So whether that's upstream, downstream, it's it's the, the point at which if you go in a back pressure application, if you go over your set point, that's the point at which the valve will open and begin to relieve that pressure to maintain that set point. Uh, with PR, it's if, you've, if you go below that set point, the valve will open to increase pressure to maintain that set point or that controlled pressure. 
how would one uh, establish that set point on a on a regulator? So on our, on our regulators, that's uh, the set point or the control point is determined by the tension on the pilot spring. That can be adjusted by the adjusting screw on top of the regulators. That's both for back pressure and PR. Um, if you in, increase the spring tension by threading in the adjusting screw, that increases the set point. Uh, if you back it out, that lessens spring tension, which lessens the set point. So you're just watching that gauge as you tighten it to see where the yep. pressure is. Yep. As you tighten, make any adjustment, loosening or tightening, you're watching the pressure gauge on the regulator or uh, the pressure gauge on the vessel or whatever piece of equipment you're you're controlling uh, to watch that pressure adjustment to know when to stop. So are you watching, as you do that, you're watching the gauge, and then whenever it, will you hear the valve open or you will, like how will you know if the valve is opened or not? Well, if it's a, a standard back pressure valve, uh, you will hear it vent, uh, which is indicating that the valve is opening, and then you'll begin to see the pressure decline uh, if you're lessening the set point. Uh, if you're increasing the set point, the valve will remain closed, and you'll have to wait for back pressure to build to the point where it starts to relieve the pressure. So you'll both see the gauge move and you'll hear usually venting. Correct. Yeah. All right, good. Number That's number one. Um, the second question here is, can you show me how to repair a low-pressure pneumatic dump valve? So this is for you, Kyle. He says, uh, I can't ever get the spring locked back down. Yeah. So what's he getting at there? What? what so we... for the low-pressure uh, control valves or dump valves, rather, um, there's a spring in the actuator. And to get the spring compressed to be able to bolt on the top of the valve actuator, you actually have to compress the spring with a special tool. Uh, it's a Kimray specific tool. Um, you can, I mean, you can order these. They're in our, our repair tool manual. Um, there's a couple of different sizes depending on uh, what valve you have, but allows you to compress the spring and to put the valve together. Because if if you don't have this tool, it's uh, near impossible to get the valve right. back together. I was going to have you guys tried it without the tool? I've heard okay. on the phone of people trying to use like <laughs> You've heard all the grunts. And, yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Kyle's right. It's near. Just buy the tool and, okay. and get it done. You'll thank yourself later, especially if you're doing a lot of these. Yeah, absolutely. And so like in our assembly, I mean, they, they use these tools. Obviously, they're putting together a lot of them, uh, but they use these tools to do that. Um, it can be a little a little tricky to know, you know, how to hold the tool in the spring and, and get things started. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you're trying to compress the spring by hand and start the diaphragm plate on the stem, it's just you, you almost can't do it. It's also kind of a recipe for disaster. You get your fingers underneath in between the like, uh, yeah. plate and that spring tension. Man. Injuries, yeah. Cool. Well, we'll definitely put a, a link to that. The, the spring compression tool is what you need. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. All right, number three. So it says, this is a comment from YouTube. It says, oil coming from dead dinosaurs is about as much as bogus as the moon landing. So do you want to tackle the moon landing or dinosaur <laughs> juice first? It's not really a question, but it was, <coughs> it was fun to, to receive this, yeah. I guess. So how would you guys answer that? question that's not really a question well i i mean you could come at it from several different angles i guess um when you know people say you know dead dinosaurs is where oil comes from um 
you know, that might just be like a partially true. It's it's dead organisms, um, you know, that that have decomposed and are, are making this. And so it's not just dinosaurs. Um, that's kind of what people like to point out. Uh, it may be dinosaurs. Man, that might be part of it. But yeah, just uh, could be cats as well. Could be cats. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just you know, uh, just you know, plant and animal <laughs> and different organisms uh-huh. that um, you know under have, pressure. Yeah. Heat, time. High heat, time uh, just has has created. That's, you know, why people call it fossil fuels. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's where that comes from. Jordan, do you have a favorite dinosaur? Uh, Stegosaurus, okay. hands down. With the plates on the back? Yeah, my boys are I have little boys at home. Yeah. They're very into dinosaurs right now. So nice. learning all the names. With okay. Kevin. Kyle? Hmm. Right. I mean, just, you know, probably Velociraptor just because of the Jurassic, Jurassic Park, Park movies. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I think, I think, I hope that's a satisfactory answer. Um, number four, Kyle. So this is a comment on our types of crude oil uh, video that uh, is pretty popular, just kind of explaining some of the different variations of oil we find, especially in domestic production in the U.S. And so this is one of our brothers in, in Canada who says, where do Canadian varieties fall on this spectrum? And there's a second question we'll get to in a minute, but where do Canadian varieties fall on that spectrum? So definitely on the heavier side of, of the spectrum. Um, some areas in Canada, uh, the, the oil is so viscous, it almost, um, almost becomes a solid in the ground. Uh-huh. Uh, just is because this what, of like the, tar pits? Is that? Yep. Okay. And so uh, actually steam injection is uh-huh. used um, to help loosen that oil. Uh, get it to be uh, less viscous and be able to come up from underground. So they inject hot steam into the ground uh, to get it to produce, get the well to produce. Uh, and so it's, yeah, on the really heavy side of uh, of the spectrum. Okay. All right. Do we know if it's sour? Don't know. Sweet, sour? Uh, that I'm not sure. Not I'd sure. have to look, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the second question that this... Uh, this guy asks is, can we mix different types of crude oil during the refining process? So refineries in the U.S., I know there are a lot in the Gulf, but mm-hmm. I assume they're all over the place. Yeah, so you can definitely mix, um, you know, let's say you take one um, super light oil and you can mix it with a heavier oil to get something in the middle. Uh, you can mix those together to get different blends uh, to achieve different different results. Okay. And so it's definitely something producers will use. Um, to their advantage, um, and that's more on the downstream side. So once all these, you know, get to refineries, then they're they're mixing and blending uh, the different types of of crudes to get a, a certain product. Yeah. So whatever it is that they're eventually going to make, they need certain blends of. Yeah. yeah. All right. So our last question, I'm going to throw at you, Jordan. So this is on one of our natural gas dehydration videos. We have a, a handful of different ones on compressors and and glycol pumps and. Uh, so this one is specifically about uh, the contact tower and a dehydration system. And he asks, what do you, why do you need an inlet scrubber before it enters the contact tower? Right, yeah, and I imagine why this question is being asked in the first place is because the whole point of the dehydration system is to dehydrate the gas. So what's the point in putting a scrubber right before a, an entire system that's going to do this job? And I think really this is like an 11th hour a final effort to get rid of any other entrained liquids in the gas uh, before we get to the glycol that's going to do all of the like 
the next step, like the next refining step. Um, that, that, that would be kind of my answer to that. What do you think yeah. about that? Kyle? Yeah, definitely. It's just giving a, normally before dehydration system, at least in large gathering systems or the midstream and compressor stations. So this, this gas is being compressed uh, before it's sent back into a pipeline. It needs to be dehydrated because when we compress the gas, some liquids are going to fall out. And so before we dehydrate the gas and put it back into the gas pipeline, it's just giving one last chance for any free liquids to fall out of the gas. And that just, like Jordan mentioned, like the dehydration system is going to remove that water anyway, but it just makes it more efficient to remove any free liquids before we use the glycol to dehydrate the gas fully. And so, you know, you save uh, on glycol circulation rates, wear and tear on equipment, just because you're not circulating as much glycol. And so it's just, uh, you know, a cost savings that can be done just before it's dehydrated. And the glycol itself is really expensive too. Absolutely. Very good. All right. Anything else come to mind on these questions, fellas? I had one this morning yeah. uh, that producer Denny sent to me yeah. uh, about oh, glycol bonus pumps. question here? Bonus question. Right. Um, and so the, uh, the question was, to summarize the question, uh, it was, can I run my 450 glycol pump um, at where the output is one gallon per hour? Will that work? That was basically the summary of, of the question. Are you going to challenge Jordan with this question now? I, I will now that you said that. <laughs> oh, my Not goodness. Uh, just blink twice if you don't want to. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I imagine uh, the answer is no. I mean, that seems like really low. Correct. And so uh, the way it was worded, it, it actually had mentioned GPM. Can you okay. run GPM? And then he also said 450 GPM. So I, I knew he was meaning gallons per hour because that's how we... Uh, calculate our glycol oh. flow rates yep. Yep. is in gallons per hour. Uh, with the 450 pump, the maximum is 450 gallons per hour. Uh, the minimum, though, um, I had to do a little bit of calculations because the minimum strokes per minute is 10 for the 450. And then the, um, the gallons per stroke on the 450 is 0.283. So you take that and times it by 10, and I'll give you 2.83 gallons per hour is the minimum, the minimum. amount yeah, very that good. you can flow. If you go below that, either that strokes, 10 strokes per minute or go below that flow rate, the pump will stall. Mm -hmm. It's not operating fast enough to continue to operate. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll stall out. So is that on a, you think a low producing well or aging well? Well, like in a situation like that, um, what I would suggest uh, is a smaller pump. Um, so the pump is oversized. Maybe it was an aging well. One point it was producing enough gas to justify a 450 pump. Uh, and now the gas uh, volume has dropped significantly. Um, or maybe even if this was at a, a central facility, maybe they shut down a few wells. Um, the point is that they don't need as much glycol circulated as they once did. And so putting a smaller pump on or even... Um, sleeving down that 450 pump uh, to make it a reduced or a small cylinder uh, pump uh, that will help, you know, be able to operate at, at lower uh, flow rates. All right. Very good. Well, we appreciate the questions. Uh, feel free to continue, please. Uh, Dropping questions. We love to get those and, and help you uh, 
you know, share knowledge and, and uh, do your jobs even better. We will catch you next time on Stuff You Should Know About Oil and Gas Production.